The World Economic Forum, it's held in the highest town in Europe. Only one way in and one way out. And as a consequence of this, over the last, well, since 1971, so it would make it 48, 48 years this year, there has been a gathering of effectively the most powerful people in the world. But what happens in divorce? You get all these A-type personalities, and they're engaging with each other. A-type personalities, for those of you who don't know this, these are people who tend not to listen too well. They're usually CEOs of companies who talk a lot and tell people what to do, but they don't absorb a lot. So now they get to divorce, and all their heroes are there. So they start listening. So they all listen to each other, and then they go back home, and they've been educated, and they effectively set the agenda for the world for the next 12 months. Until they get back together again, and listen again, and so on and so forth. South Africa's always punched above its weight at the World Economic Forum. What do you find there, if you look on the far left-hand side? That is uh, uh, lots of security, as you wouldn't be surprised on. And the far right-hand side, I, did, I took a screenshot on my phone for two reasons. One, my daughter doesn't believe that I'm capable of doing that. And secondly, to show you that I wasn't lying when I said it was minus 17. And it was minus 17 while I was walking to, uh, it was about a 25-minute walk where I saw your boss, I suppose we don't have to disclaim this, Sim, Love, uh, Sim, Sim Shabalala, attending an ABSA function. I asked him as he came out, did you have lots to eat? He said, as much as possible. <laughs> that ABSA function was at 7 o'clock in the morning. ABSA have taken a, a, a big, they have great exposure now on the promenade. So during that week in Davos, people want to be seen. So at the promenade, you have this huge big ABSA building that they've taken over just for the week. And at 7 o'clock in the morning, when it looked like that in the middle, with the, the, the moon up freezing, minus 17, you couldn't move in that place for people who came along to hear the story of how to invest in South Africa. Now, I said this last year. I've been going to divorce, as Brett mentioned, 16 times. Most of that time, it's been terribly disappointing because there was no interest in this country. People that were not, didn't want to invest. It was just no interest. In fact, in the most recent years, it's been quite embarrassing to be South African. There were sniggers that when they saw your, your South African scarf that we are encouraged to wear. Last year, that turned around. This year, it, the smart money is coming. Now, we sit here in this maelstrom of fake news and noise and shouting and screaming and, and it's a noisy place, this. And we think, that it's going to the dogs, or worse. Zimbabwe, here we come. The reality is the smart money is not betting that way. And I saw that at the World Economic Forum again. Not least, minus 17 degrees, 25-minute 20, walk, and the place was heaving. You could hardly get in there. I mentioned my major themes because there are 400 different sessions at the World Economic Forum. So most people who go there will return with a different impression. This year, the three themes, I focused a lot on South Africa, and I will be sharing that with you because it is my view that on the 18th of December 2017, there was a watershed in this country's uh, future, that this country went towards prosperity rather than towards funerary. And I wanted to see how much progress had been made and to also get an understanding, just by listening, being the observer, remember, how the country was progressing now that last year the deputy president was the president and whether he was, in fact, implementing or whether the spirit was different to what I'd seen in previous years. So that's the middle one. That's the South African delegation uh, at, at the press conference. I spent a lot of time with the South Africans this year. On the left-hand side is Hendrik de Toy who is the incoming chief executive of Investec. He is a member of the global body that the World Economic Forum has. They have it on, on various topics. So when there's a, a hot topic, they will put some really good people together. In this case, it's the environmental topic, climate change, environment, which is chaired by the chief executive of Unilever, Paul Polman, and Hendrik is uh, one of the, the executives 
who is in that. And so between, he's, he's on that grouping. And so between annual meetings, they engage with each other, go to conferences, find out the latest talk, and then feed it back into the World Economic Forum. He gave a breakfast presentation, very well attended, where the focus was what we call ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Investing. That is no longer for the PR department, that is now mainstream. Hendrick's view on this, well not just view, and they look after in London 150 billion uh, pounds of assets. He says we will, we believe that every company that we invest in must have an ESG director. And the reason for this is that the young people of the world are saying we're not prepared to have the world run the way it was in the past. We want things to be done differently. <coughs> Environment's important. The uh, uh, social uh, license is important and governance of a company. So just bear that in mind. If you're investing in a company where the ESG rating is bad, you're likely to find people like him and other asset managers abandoning that stock. And then on the far right, I, I put a picture of Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum, because he did a most unusual thing this year. Every year they have six co-chairs. There are six people who guide this whole meeting, 3,000 A-type personalities, uh, 400 different sessions, Nobel Prize winners, CEOs of the biggest companies, many of the, of the top politicians. And the co-chairs guide this, and this year, all barring one of the co-chairs, was under the age of 25. So he went out and he got what are called global shapers, and he brought them in, and they managed the meeting. Again, trying to understand what the next generation is doing. But with the one co-chair who wasn't is Sacha Nadella, the chief executive of Microsoft. And he is part of the theme because Microsoft is part of the whole big tech story, which is very big in Davos this year. Starting with environment, that's Sir David Attenborough. I would urge you, if you have any interest whatsoever on climate change, the environment, and, and I, get, I get all kinds of interesting letters from people who are denialists on climate change. My suggestion is this guy probably knows more than most in the world. Sir David Attenborough in the 1950s came to Africa. He was exposed as a young filmmaker to the natural world there, and he has watched over the last 70 years how the change in the climate has affected the natural world. And he says, he was interviewed incidentally by Prince William, who did a fine job of the interview. He says that you cannot exaggerate the impact of climate change. The impact is beyond anything that anybody's been writing about. But he also says that he has hope for it because now mankind is finally waking up to the reality. And when mankind does that, when mankind manages it, or measures it, it starts to manage it. So that was his story. But environment, very, very strong this year. The other theme here, uh, this is Mr. Kai-Fu Li, who was previously the head of Google in China. He is a professor. He's at an American university and one of the go-to guys on AI, artificial intelligence. Our partners, the Wall Street Journal, have a parallel uh, streaming sessions uh, along with the, the, the WEF and I went along to a couple of the sessions that they invited me to including this one which was hugely insightful to understand for the first time how artificial intelligence is affecting our lives and why there is such a huge kickback now against the companies that have benefited from taking personal data from individuals. Many of us kind of don't get it that, that while we're surfing the net or uh, looking at our Gmail, that suddenly adverts come up related to things that we've been looking at recently. Now the reason for that is that big data, and in, in particular Facebook and Google, have got so much information about you. Google, if you've got Gmail, I mean, they can read your emails. They've got so much information about you that they can target you 
to advertisers in a way that traditional media cannot. The consequence of this is that Facebook and Google have scooped up about 60% of the global advertising market. Now, if you think that we're talking about China outside of that, because they're not allowed to play in China, uh, it gives you an understanding of how dominant they are. In this country, the number is somewhere between 70 and 80% of digital advertising in South Africa is either Google or Facebook. What happens in a case like that is that the authorities, the regulators, start kicking back. We had it with U.S. Steel, with Andrew Carnegie over 100 years ago. We had it with John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, which was split up. It's called antitrust. Last year, there was a bit of bubbling coming through. This year, it's moving very aggressively now against this duopoly who have dominated that field and who use the, the information of individuals to profit when the individuals don't really know how much information they're giving. So a big theme this year, those of you who've been following our global portfolio would have seen on my return from Davos, we sold Google, or Alphabet as it's now called. Last year, I thought thought about it last year, but uh, it still didn't seem right last year. This year, it is right. Now again, as you're probably very well aware, if you've followed the changes in the global portfolio, uh, I tend to do things very early, but... You, you, you've probably got a nice run if you stick with Google, Google for a little longer. But the, the world is changing now against these two. Incidentally, Google, in the four years we've owned the shares, has doubled in value. So it's done very, very well for us. But the world is changing against them. So I would urge you, if you have it in your portfolio, just think about it very carefully. Artificial intelligence is massive. It's going to be dominated by a few people, but that is when the regulators start stepping in. We've seen recently some very hefty fines as well uh, being thrown at these guys. <clears throat> Just to give you a, a few of the people that I met and spoke to, on the far right-hand side is one of the co-chairs. Uh, this young man lives in a refugee camp in, Western, in eastern Kenya. Uh, he is a Somali. He has lived in that refugee camp for 18 years. Refugee camps are supposed to be in and out been there for 18 years. There are 185,000 other people there. But of course, it's eastern Kenya and not in the middle of Europe somewhere. After he did a pretty good job of co-chairing this meeting, he went straight back to the refugee camp. Something funny going on in the world. Next to him in the middle are two people who are researching aging, not aging necessarily in the fact that we are aging, of course we are, but healthy aging. We're living longer, much longer than we did in the past. And uh, Dame Linda Partridge, again there's a really nice interview that I had with her, is one of the experts in how to live longer, healthier. Now the big issue in aging are the two dread diseases for which there are no cures at the moment. And that's Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And there is an enormous amount of investment that is going into it. Not surprisingly, because in the rich north, people are getting older. And that more of them are getting uh, um, dementia and these related diseases, for which they haven't found any cures. So, really interesting. What, what her and uh, Konstantinos Dimitrios is, a, is one of the young scientists, young up-and-coming scientists uh, who is a research star. Uh, both of them work within the European Council. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he runs the, uh, the aging, inst- at, aging area at the Max Planck Institute. Now, those of you who are into science will know it's probably the most prestigious in- uh, institute in Europe anyway. And both of them say that it's quite simple if you want to age well. Just make sure you get blood to your brain. <laughs> and that means walk uh, don't drink too much, don't smoke, don't smoke. And uh, just, just be all the stuff that our parents told us about. But it's interesting, they've been, they've been investigating aging with mice, worms, work on things like telomeres, how do you lengthen them, not shorten them as people get older. Fascinating, the science of aging, uh, extraordinary. And then this guy here is Popo Malefi. If you are in that 
first quadrant. Rejection. That's nah, a lot of rubbish, what's going on in South Africa. Just listen to this guy's interview. What's going on at Transnet? He is the chairman of Transnet. He's starting to put people in jail. In fact, we saw a guy getting, well, getting sentenced 20 years. The head of ICASA, the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, the guys who issue radio licenses, he's gone to Chucky, 20 years uh, this week. We're starting to see the, yellow, the, the, the orange pajamas, orange overalls, coming more into play. And the work that's being done at Transnet, remember, which is one of the targets, Eskom's all in the news now, but Transnet was the, that was the, the template. That's where Brian Malefi and Anosh Singh got, and McKinsey got going first. And they just continued along that line. Very interesting interview, and I urge you to, to, to read that one. Okay, on to South Africa. Why did this guy sing? His name is Agrizi. He is the chap using the bridle. He's in the room. He's not Gupta Leaks, which we all got and then had a look at and try to work out what these noxious fellows were doing. He's in the room. He's the man who actually put the 100,000 rand a month together to pay uh, this, this uh, deputy NPA prosecutor, Jiba, who's now saying, oh, I never got the money, but he's got evidence of it. He's the guy who put the 300,000 rand a month of cash to give to Dudumyeni, who's bankrupted SAA to the degree that we as taxpayers now are having to bail it out to the tune of billions. This guy got a... <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how this works. And I wrote about, uh, about it the other day on divine intervention and got quite a bit of flaming from the atheist community. Uh, one of my heroes, Clay Christensen, who is, is a very um, aligned with, with my views on religion, if you like, I asked him when I met him, I said, what about atheists? And he said, no, everybody can teach you stuff. So I guess these guys were teaching me what they believe and what they believe was there's no such thing as divine intervention. But then I don't understand this, because here's this guy who leaves Bosasa, prime evil. He then is on his way. He's got lots of money. He's been paid every month, as they did. They paid everybody off to be for hash money. Then he gets a tumor on the heart, and he goes to hospital, and he goes into a coma. So, luck, he's gone. But he comes back. And when he comes back, he says, boy, I need to make good. I'm now going to spill the beans. I don't care what Watson does to me. I don't care what all these people that, that I've been, been paying off do to me. Because there's something else going on in this life. I've got to make good with the big boss. It's an extraordinary story. Read his affidavit. What went on in this country, it's surprising that we're still standing. It's surprising that, that, that the country's still around. The, the depth of this this. Uh, particularly at the National Prosecuting Authority, which is where you start uh, attacking corruption. Paul O'Sullivan, one of my heroes, I think he's got four bullets in his body from being shot in various places. At, at the worst of the time, when, when I had interviews with Paul, we could never uh, announce it beforehand because he was justifiably concerned that if he came to the studio, he, he wouldn't make it home because they'd be waiting for him. And they are people who clearly are, are now not benefiting from the fact that O'Sullivan has been continuously fighting the good fight. But he's not alone. There have been, there's an armada of NGOs who've been involved in this. And the media's role has been extraordinary. At a time that Agrizi was quiet, we knew there was a lot going on, but we were the artists, we were the observers. We could only surmise... And at one point in time, you, you, we all thought that it was just really the Guptas. Well, we now know that that's not the case and that there's many more. But this has been a dramatic development in South Africa's transformation. And I ask you, if we had a president and a ruling party that did not want transparency, why would he have three commissions of inquiry looking into hanging up as much dirty laundry as possible.
It's an extraordinary time we're living in right now in this country. If you have a look at this graph, I, 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 I show it to you to give you an understanding of where the money flows have been going during the Zuma era. The red line is money leaving South Africa. That's you guys who take your money offshore. As we said through the global portfolio in 2014, we said Zoomonomics is going to bankrupt this country. Get your money offshore as, much, as quickly as you can. Take it off. And you did, and you did well. That was the rational thing to do. The exporting of capital, as you can see, in 2017, the figure was about 7 billion US dollars. That's insane for a developing country. A developing country needs money. Shouldn't be sending money out. The green is the money coming in. Look at that. 2017 was just about nothing. A billion dollars. It, had, it, it was during the, the Zuma era, the country was heading in the wrong direction fast. That's what the net flow looks like. A net minus six billion and going in the wrong direction. That's 2017. So if you ever wonder about when I say to you the watershed, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And then along comes Mr. Ramaphosa, who was elected. You can see it's around about that time there. If you recall, by the way, this is a RAND graph. When it goes in that direction, when it goes up, when the RAND rises, we, for some reason we always invert the RAND against the US dollar. That means it weakens. That means it strengthens. Okay. So what was happening during Zuma, the Zumi era, the RAND was in that direction, weakening. And then around here, once it got to about 15 to the US dollar, people internationally started saying, well, maybe Zuma's not going to win the elective conference. Just maybe. Because by then it, was, it, it had blown out. It was starting to discount a move to 20, 25, even 30, if we were continuing along those lines. And we know now, by reading Agrizi and by reading Gupta Leaks and by just listening to the president and others, we know where we were going. So suddenly the money started, not money coming into the country as fixed investment, but traders started taking a position and saying, well, maybe it's not going to blow up that badly. Of course, then we had Ramaphoria, and as you can see over there, after uh, Cyril was elected, there's Ramaphoria, the RAND came down to as, as strong as 1180, and then recently we had Eskom. So the Eskom story is now front and centre. Uh, I wanted to show you, though, where we were going. My friend Brett Duncan, sitting in the front row here from Standard Bank, said to me one day, go and have a look at where the Turkish lira is going, because the Turkish premier, a guy called Erdogan, and Zuma, if you know anything about racing, they were coupled on the tote. These were the two guys who were in the same, uh, they were carbon copies of each other. And you look at what Erdogan's doing, you look at what Zuma was doing, they are. So, South Africa and the Turkish lira, their currency, continued pretty much in the same vein. Right up until December 2017, which is about there. And then suddenly the South African rand was pretty stable and the Turkish lira blew out. It got there... And at that point in time, they jacked up the interest rates from around the same level that we have them at, six and three quarter percent, to 25 percent. If you were to take the rand today to the rand where the, where the lira is, in other words, if we had continued to follow each other, the rand would be sitting at 20 to the US dollar. Imagine the impact of that on the petrol price and so on. But worse than that, it would only be 20 because interest rates would be sitting at 25%, not at 6 or 7% as they are at the moment. Uh, we're talking about the bank rate. That's the bullet this country dodged. Okay, let's talk Eskom. I spent yesterday, yesterday, Thursday, yeah, yesterday, at 6 o'clock, I was in the lockup at, uh, at Parliament. And from 6 to 12, to, sorry, to 2, uh, going through all the details of the budget. We had, uh, we had a webinar last night on the budget, uh, which was very well attended. And the main, the main issue of the budget, when you look back on it, last year it was the increase of one percentage point in VAT and fees must fall. 
you know, 15 billion that suddenly was thrown at, at, at Cyril. This year, it's Eskom. And the money that is being put into Eskom is the equivalent of one percentage point increase in VAT. Treasury said last year that VAT going up would give us uh, 22.9 billion extra into the fiscus. Uh, we're putting in the taxpayers, you and I, us. We're now becoming shareholders. You know, we already own 100% of Eskom, but now we're going to own 100% more. Well, it's not 100%, but, but we're just going to put in 23 billion for the next three years. Why? And it, it, this is quite critical. First of all, if Eskom doesn't work, the country doesn't work. South Africa needs investment. No one's going to invest when the lights aren't on. So the one thing you've got to get fixed is Eskom. The story in divorce was all about investment. When I met people, they said, oh, you're South African guys. They don't want to, want to socialize. They want to talk about sport. They just want to talk investment, investment, investment. They were sent there with one thing on their minds, and that is bring money into the country. Eskom had to be fixed. If it wasn't fixed, the whole plan just falls away. So that 23 billion rand a year is, and I don't know why people don't kind of listen when, when these, uh, particularly a guy like Tito, he spent an hour and a half in the media conference yesterday. Half an hour longer in a media conference trying to explain to the media than he spent actually delivering the speech. And in that hour and a half, he reiterated time and again that this is to help Eskom to get sorted out into three units. The first unit is going to be the production of, of power. At the moment, Eskom's pretty much the only one. We've got independent power producers who've come along. But that area is going to be open to everybody. They will have competition for the first time. So unit one, fully competitive. If you happen to be a really good uh, per, if you invent some way of producing power, that's what you can do. You can compete with Eskom. The second unit will be a monopoly. That is the transmission system, the national grid, if you like. And in that, you'll, you'll, the state is the shareholder. You'll probably find that the PIC, they haven't announced this yet, but certainly in just, just the way the guys were talking and from my observations, it looks like some 10 billion rand of what the PRC has lent to Eskom will be converted into equity. So it'll be a shareholder in, in the transmission side. And then the third bit is the distribution side, the thing that drives everybody in this country mad when they see the pictures of people stealing electricity. That will be open to the marketplace. So no longer will you have Eskom responsible for municipal accounts alone. If, if the Eskom's dumb enough to give money to the municipalities and they're not going to pay them, well, fine. You know, then Eskom won't be around for much longer. But it's going to have lots of competitors in that space. So we're going to have competition in distribution. We're going to have competition in production. But the national grid will remain as a, as a utility for Eskom. That's what the $23 billion a year is meant to achieve. And if you consider that we've had this monopoly for so many years and they really screwed us over, maybe it's not a bad price to pay. In Davos, this guy is the head, he's the chairman, like uh, Paul Polman from Unilever. He is the chairman of the Energy Council in Davos. So he's like the smartest guy that they could find. He, he comes from a company called Enel in Italy. And who did Private Gordon go and knock on? Whose door did he knock on? This fellow. He said, please help us. We've got problems. So he's sent, they've sent out, Enel have sent out a few engineers. They've also invested in renewables in South Africa, so there is a connection. This is something that you need to be mindful of. It's the, it's the uh, direction that South Africa is going. Whether you like it or not, the future of this country is going to be determined, certainly from what I observed, by the philosophies that Mariana Mazzucatu is expounding. Mariana Mazzucati is one of the up-and-coming economists, one of the most, most respected economists in the world. She is the author of a number of books. She is somebody who's applied her mind, as of many, to this system that we have, which is not working. We know it's not working. The reason we know it's not working is because the rich are getting richer mm -hmm. and the poor are getting, losing hope. And at some point in time, what we're seeing on the populist's front this year, for instance, we did not have Mrs. May in Davos because she was too busy trying to sort Brexit out. We did not have Emmanuel Macron 
in, Devo in Davos because he was too busy trying to sort out the Yellow Jackets. We did not have the President of Italy who had issues. But of course, we did not have Donald Trump because he was uh, trying to do his own thing in the United States. Now, that is almost unprecedented that you have so many cancellations because of concerns that are going on in the world. When you have a look at the way elections have been going towards populism, clearly there's something just not gelling. Her thesis, which Robin Gordon, uh, I sat one from him before she arrived. She was his special guest at the Brand South Africa dinner. He said, she will change your mind when you read her books and listen to her, and she certainly has. South Africa has been following something called the developmental state. If you don't know that, then you, you don't know why we have not been thriving, why the economy hasn't been going well. Because when you have a developmental state and you have crooked people there, they just steal. And we saw that. We saw the billions and tens of billions. So you had this developmental state, bad people, tragedy. Now we're getting the right people into the developmental state. It's not changing because this country has got huge issues of the re required or the need to go for a more inclusive growth model than the one that exists elsewhere. But what she's come up with, or what, she, what her th thesis is, is the entrepreneurial development state. Entrepreneurial development state. And there are many ways of, of unpacking this. I suggest you read the book if you're interested in it. But just think for a minute. If you could have a country, if it were possible that you had a country where the brightest and the best went to serve, went to work for the public service. I mean, you probably say, oh, that's impossible. But then I say to you, look at Singapore. In Singapore, the brightest and the best, best job you can get in Singapore is working for the state. That's what she's trying to do. There are many reasons why uh, we, we kind of get things wrong. Uh, DARPA in the United States. Steve Jobs. How did Steve Jobs create Apple? Was he this heroic entrepreneur? No. He went to Park, which was a research facility of Xeroxes funded by government. And when he saw what was going on there, he could apply that. But the, the investment that had gone into that over many, many years had been done by taxpayers. And what Mr. Lee from China was saying was that at the moment in artificial intelligence, America is kicking China's butt because America is investing 11 to 1 to China. $11 to $1. America meaning American state versus the Chinese state. America, however, is doing its very best to give up that position of advantage because it, it has a president who doesn't believe that the state should be investing in these things. We have a president... Who thinks differently? Who knows where it's going to go? You can pay your money, take your choice, but that's the reality of where South Africa is moving. I had a, a fascinating interview with Kurs Becker. Uh, he is the guy who's represented in all of your portfolios. NASPAS is about 20% of the JSC. So if you have equity in your retirement funds, which pretty much everybody does, then this guy, you've got to thank him for at least some of that growth. Uh, when they went in 1990 and bought a little company for $30 million, or half of it, called Tencent in China, no one knew what an amazing success story it would be or how it would enrich a nation, which it has done. He's a most extraordinary human being. And uh, we, we chatted for about an hour. We, the interview, I cut it down. Well, I didn't cut it, couldn't cut it down. But it, uh, the interview is about 40 minutes. It's well worth listening to. His assessment, the South African team, did exceptionally well in Davos this year, and he uh, singled out the guy who was in the spotlight yesterday, Tito Mboweni, for the uh, contribution that he's making. And uh, again, if you, if you want to understand how things have changed, go and listen to that press conference yesterday of Tito Mboweni, and you would, you, you'll be most surprised. Amongst the things he did was he started, he chided his fellow ANC members uh, that they should start realizing that the Soviet Union collapsed uh, 30 years ago, etc., etc. These are just a few pictures of, of uh, Team South Africa who were in attendance in Davos and supporting the group, uh, the, the, the government initiative. And it is a Team South Africa thing. When you go there, you tend to 
have, a, have a very clear picture of what the country is looking for. This year it was all about investment. Uh, those are the two guys, the, the, the guys from Sassel, Adrian Gore, who tells me they're working very closely with the Department of Health in South Africa on the NHI, uh, which is a very good thing. By the way, they're working closely with the uh, uh, National Health Service in the UK as well. Uh, and that I heard at a event where the, the equivalent of the Minister of Health in the UK uh, was praising discovery and saying how they realise that you need preventative, otherwise the National Health Service, which is the jewel of the British system, uh, will fall over. Stephen Kossett, who, who uh, is a regular there. And then I, I have at the far right, Samantha Coleman, Holman. Samantha Holman is a, a, a reflection of a really lovely South African success story. Eleven years ago, a little South African company called Liquid Chefs was invited to do a event, one event in Davos. Uh, you can imagine this, these events are the most prestigious and the most sought-after suppliers on earth. This year, 11 years later, they are by far the biggest event company in Davos. They do, they do the Google party, they do the Facebook party, all the places you really want to get invited to. 42 events this year, and they flew in 85 people. So it just shows you that the pockets of excellence are being seen in the right places. I want to finish off with a, a little bit of uplifting news. This is a uh, inappropriately named, I guess, uh, a rig called Brilpada. And the reason it's Brilpada is because many years ago, the apartheid government was trying to find oil off the Southern Cape, about 150 kilometers off the Southern Cape. Because had the apartheid government found oil, it would have been in a position where it really didn't need the rest of the world. All it really needed then, the only thing this country didn't have was oil. And it, it tried its best because the geology of the Otaniqua Basin, which is a basin of about 350 kilometers along the southern Cape Coast, the geology is extremely attractive for oil and gas. And we know this as well because millions of years ago, I presume, when the continents broke up, we in this part of Africa, broke away from South America. And the same geology exists in South America where they found plenty of gas and oil. So the geology is there. It's the, it's the Otaniqua Basin. And some clever guy decided to call it this little block, uh, the Parafisi block. And then uh, you had the Brilpada, which is part of the Parafisi. So I think we're going to go have some very interesting names coming up in future. Anyway, Total had a right to explore in one of the blocks of this 350 long uh, uh, exploitative area. And it was going along quite nicely until 2014 when the shenanigans that were happening with the NPRDA by the uh, Zuma administration got Total to say, well, look, we think it's exciting, but we don't want any bit of it. And they left, as did Shell, stop exploring. They, they were exploring uh, in shale gas, which South Africa has either the fourth or the eighth biggest reserves on earth. And shale gas has transformed the American economy. In the Karoo, depending, make it the eighth biggest on earth. Uh, that's what exists there, what shale exists under the surface. Total then left. They hadn't been able to really find anything. The reason they couldn't find anything is that the seas are very rough in that area, in the, the area that is above the Otaniqua Basin. In the interim, they started exploring in the Shetland Islands where the seas are equally rough. They got the technology right. When a new dispensation came into South Africa, the new administration, Total returned in December. They put down their first feelers. In February, they hit the equivalent of four years of South African oil imports. They have five they have identified five similar areas in their block. Now, I mention this because I'm very, I've been following the oil story for a long time. Not surprisingly, because it has a transformative opportunity in South Africa. In the United States, they knew there was shale gas there, but it took many years for the technology to catch up with the idea. 
But since 2009, when they learned how to actually bring this shale gas up, America has turned around from being a net oil importer and invader of the Middle East to a net oil exporter, and we're not interested in Syria or anything else that's going on there. Thanks very much. The reality for South Africa is not that the gas will come in eight, year, eight years' time. It is that the entire industry is looking at this as a game-changer. Indeed, that's the way it was described by Wood McKenzie, who are the preeminent uh, advisory firm in oil and gas in the world. This is big. It's a big deal. It's a seriously big deal. Because once you start getting others, once they see it, and incidentally, Total, in its last annual report, made the Otaniqua Basin, before it hit, it, it, it made the discovery, it made it the number one opportunity on Earth. It was the one that they were, going to, they were going to go for. So it puts it into perspective as well. This long wait of decades and decades of exploration for oil and gas has finally come. Now, why didn't it come while well, Zuma was around? Okay, divine inspiration, perhaps intervention. <laughs> Who knows? But the timing is impeccable. This is an updated graph. By the way, these figures come from the United Nations Development Agency. Called, it's called UNCTAD. You can go and look it up. It's there all the time. UNCTAD numbers. So these aren't numbers that the stats essay. Some people say stats essay are not giving us the truth anymore. But this is what UNCTAD did. You saw the numbers up to there. We don't, unfortunately, have the, the, uh, the, the outflow numbers, but we certainly have the inflow numbers for last year from UNCTAD. It's gone from there in 2017, pre-Ramaphosa, to there in 2018. Now, if that doesn't start make you, making you scratch your head and say, hey, you've come done, then I don't know what will. We had the investment conference last year at which 20 billion US dollars was committed. In Davos this year, Ramaphosa said he's having another one this year, where he expects another 20 billion dollars. But more than that, the message that he is giving is a very different one to the one we had heard in the past. He's got four envoys who've been going around the world trying to help him in this audacious goal of introducing $100 billion into South Africa in five years. So Jacob Marie is one of them. Sibisi uh, Jonas is another. Trevor Manuel is another. And off these four envoys go, and they go and speak to investors, and the investors are telling them why they're not bringing money in. Comes back to the country, comes back to the president, explains to the president why, and things change as a consequence. A wonderful talk to listen to is the Ramaphosa off-piste talk that I put my phone on at the Brand South Africa dinner this year. This was an event that I usually they would tie me down and put me in there just to get someone there, anybody, please come and eat our food. This year I didn't crack the, in, uh, the nod, didn't get an invitation because there were too many foreign investors who had actually requested to come, which is a good thing. But I pitched anyway and waited <laughs> and I, I managed to get in. Uh, there was a, a spare seat, as you know. I, I sat next to Mariana Mazzucato and next to Pravin Gordon. But after dinner, as he did last year, Cyril picked up the microphone and just walked and started talking for 20 minutes. No script. When you see many of these politicians around the world, what you don't see is they have two auto cues. Now, having worked in television, auto cue is, 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 is something I know quite well, so I've spotted. But it's perspex. So you see, sitting in the back of the hall, you won't even see these, these auto cues. But on the auto cues is, are, are, are the words. And they're reading there. Watch them. Watch these politicians. They'll read and they'll talk this side and then they'll look this side and talk. And, you know, Trump does this a lot. Not very good at it because you can see his eyes are, are kind of following the, the wording. But if you didn't know, you'd think he was talking to this side of the room and then that side of the room. Ramaphosa doesn't need a script. Go and listen to him. I'd also urge you, if you are not sure, read Anthony, Sam uh, Anthony Butler's book, biography that was written 10 years ago. It's all in the CV with this guy. It's all in the CV. As it usually is for most human beings and what challenges they are given. So the, the, the turnaround is quite stark. 
And right now, there's no reason for him not to be smiling. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions. Can I interest anybody in? Alex, you mentioned technology. Can you elaborate in terms of what's the kind of trends? What are you seeing? You Microsoft. Yeah, the, the, uh, the question was, you mentioned technology. Can you elaborate the trends? From an investor's point of view, uh, big tech is coming under increasing pressure. It used to be pretty easy when we bought those tech stocks four years ago. You just bought them and just rode them. Uh, that's no longer the case. It's like uh, if you recall in years gone by, you used to know the rand would weaken. And then suddenly we had this, this strengthening of the rand. It's, it's that story that's coming through. So the tech stocks are coming under increasing pressure uh, from regulators, from investors who are looking elsewhere. Uh, the, the, the whole story of artificial intelligence, uh, according to Dr. Lee, or Professor Lee, there, are, there will only be six winners on Earth, because it is, again, the guerrilla game. We know in tech that in tech, if you, win, if you own the area, like Google does with search, you tend to own 99% of it, or 90% of it. The six that he identified were in the United States, Facebook, Amazon, Google. In China, Tencent, Alibaba, Viber. Because they have the investments, the, the capacity to make the investments, it's a little bit like a, a virtuous circle. In China, well, we can all be, I think, be very happy that, that Naspas has got such a big stake in Tencent. The philosophy there is get it right to begin with. China has had privacy rules from day one in that you may not sell, this is what Professor Lee said, you may not sell the personal information that you gather from people who, are, who, who you're getting it from, you may not sell it to third parties. The United States does not have that. So in China, when Tencent gets your information, they can only use it themselves. When Baidu gets the, the big data, and the same with Alibaba and whoever else you happen to give it to. Whereas in the United States, they don't have that. So the first thing that is likely to happen is the United States will follow the Chinese example, which will then have a massive impact. Because if you can't sell that data, why would people use it to advertise? And that's their business model. Sir? I've got the utmost respect for Cyril, and I think we're very blessed. I, I worry about how thin his team is, and I suspect, I always worry that we want heart attack poison mushroom away from disaster. If he were to fall over, do you think do you think David Mabuza is a good guy? Do you think we are we've got people in place that are going to carry on this this butcher? The the question for those who didn't hear was um, there's great respect for Ramaphosa, but what happens if he dies? Do we have you know what's on the bench? Uh, and it's interesting, this week on Tuesday I went to a pre budget discussion with people from the Treasury. People I'd never heard of. People who are further down the pecking order. And the brilliance blew me away. When I go to Davos and engage with people there, this year, Stella Ndabeni Avrams, another person who, she's been given a bit of a rough ride by the media. Sure, she stubbed her toe once or twice. But another person who speaks without having to have a script She's just bright. The bench is deep and the bench is strong. And South Africans have had enough of corruption. And it is not just South Africans. It's a global phenomenon. In Brazil, they voted in a right-winger. In Brazil, they put the most popular president in the world into jail for 12 years. If you take what's happened in Brazil on, on Operation Car Wash where there's more than 30 people now in jail, the U.S. equivalent would be like taking the head of the House of Representatives and the head of the Senate and jailing them both for more than a decade. It's an extraordinary backlash towards corruption that we are seeing all over the world. And the, 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 whatever Didi Mabuza is or isn't, 
And the New York Times certainly was not flattering in that investigative piece that they did recently. There is a strong bench, and there is a realization that you cannot be on the wrong side of history now. The old days, there's just too much technology. There's too much information that someone will pass on. I, I, I'll, I'll reference you to VBS, Vendor Building Society, established in the old South Africa. Uh, it then became a mutual bank, and it started being pillaged by two partners of KPMG. doesn't mean that KPMG itself is rotten to the core, but boy, they're coming in for a are roasting at the moment. And they had a conspiracy of silence, as tends to always happen. We saw why Agrizi changed his mind, because of a tumor on the heart and a coma. The conspiracy of silence was so strong that when the investigators spoke to the witnesses, the witnesses, without question, gave them this story. A story that said there wasn't really anything wrong, and actually it's all business as usual, etc. Until it was explained that a new law that has been introduced, Section 140 of FICA, means that if you, as a witness, tell us something that is true, we cannot send you to jail for what you're telling us. Once this was explained to those witnesses, more than half a dozen of them transformed their story 180 degrees and spilt the beans. Hence, we had the investigation that managed to crack the case so quickly and it's, it's all there. The, 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 the other work on VBS was through bringing in the private sector. What I saw in Davos, what I'm hearing, what I'm observing, is that the belief that is in the administration today is one of public-private partnerships. It's one of saying, look, we've got good guys in the public sector, and in fact, we would love the public sector to be a place where it is the number one uh, career option. But at the moment, it's people who are called, and there's some really good people there. The more I get exposed to them, the more, I, I, more respect uh, I have. But this is the only country that has business, labor, government, civil society in the same camp, talking around the same fire. Elsewhere in the world, this doesn't happen. So there are many things that are moving in the right direction. The, 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 the role that uh, an Adrian Gore is playing at the moment and discovery, where South Africa is getting a, a increasingly small in, in their international footprint. The role that they're playing in helping on national health to find the right kind of solutions, the sensible solutions. The listening government that Ramaphosa says that he is in charge of today. The, the, the ability of this government to debate things like the land issue aggressively. Is it good or is it bad? Surely it's good. Surely it's good that everybody gets the 702 option of 1993. If you remember how the country was burning back there, but we had 702 that people could all phone into and express their concerns. And it took a lot of the heat out of the system. So there's a deep bench. The more I, I get exposed to it, the more I realize it. The more I get exposed to it, the more I realize that the, the, the thinness is in the crooks, is amongst the bad guys. Thank you. The one industry that South Africa has done extraordinarily well in is renewables. The, uh, of the 7.1 billion of 2018, 4.9, I think, was renewables. But it's across the board. I have an office in London in WeWork. WeWork is the hottest shared office space company in the world. SoftBank is a big shareholder. They, they, their market value is over 20 billion US dollars, and they've only been going for two years. They're in pretty much every city that matters elsewhere. Because I have an office, and because they are very sociable people, the, the, uh, the people who work at, at WeWork, the community managers, that's their whole process, I've been talking to them continuously about when are they going to open an office in South Africa. And then looking around at the other side as well, the South Africans who've been engaging with WeWork, and they weren't coming. 
They were looking, they were interested, but they weren't prepared to invest. They announced about two weeks ago that they will be opening here in the third quarter of this year. We also saw an investment, or a bid anyway, whether it's going to be an investment or not, depends on, I suppose, BDS and, and, and the political and the ANC Youth League and whatever, but an Israeli company making a five billion rand bid for Clover. That would have been done with quite a lot of consciousness behind it. It's really across the board. South African assets are cheap. And actually, my, my, my sense is that the offshore play should now be replaced by an onshore one. That this is the time to... Ramaphoria got us all excited that we were talking, Brett and I, about it earlier. We got terribly excited uh, in January, February, March of last year. And then, the, of course, it didn't happen immediately. And everything then went back to normal. It's a little bit like when, uh, when Bill Gates changed his mind on the internet. If, if you recall, back in, in the early days of the internet, he was camped against it. Microsoft said, this thing's not going to happen. And he changed his mind. He wrote a book called uh, Something at the Speed of Thought. Uh, I think it's Change at the Speed of Thought. Anyway, it's a big, fat book. And in the book and in his discussions of it afterwards, he, says we, he said, we always, always overestimate these changes in the short term and underestimate them in the long term. And the Ramaphoria uh, thesis is totally aligned with that. Just look past the noise. And it is across the board. Sure. Joe, big audiences. Are you happy, guy? Oh, one last question. Okay, sir. Um, I think just earlier on your comment on the Chinese tech companies, um, I think you, I feel like you maybe just lost over, um, even though they're not allowed to sell their third book, their data to third parties, um, it is a tacit assumption that it's accept, uh, accessible to the government. Um, and I think that's a, that's a huge concern uh, from a privacy. I think that's a much bigger issue than privacy. Um, do you have any comments on that? I don't know what I don't know. I think it was Socrates again who said that, that the beginning of wisdom is, is to say I know nothing. And in this subject I know nothing. The only thing I'm, I was passing on was what Dr. Lee had to say about it. Uh, those, those things are beyond my pay grade. Uh, Huawei, uh, whether they're 5Gs, the Brits are now saying that, that actually they're quite happy that they're going to take Huawei back into Britain. The Americans are trying to get everybody to not take Huawei equipment because the Chinese government will know what people are saying on cell phones. Who knows? I mean, these things are... are we live in an incredibly complex world. The point... I was making there was that from a business, from an investment perspective, they are not at risk in the same way as the American companies at risk because they follow, they already have regulations, if you like, whereas the Americans have to bring in regulations. Yeah, I think they had a late start. Sorry, I just have one more thing to say about that. I really do think that um, there's good evidence for how WeChat's being used by the Chinese government and things like that. And, you know, we all are shareholders in Aspash and in things and I think we should be mindful of that. Yeah, and, and be mindful that the Chinese people don't seem to mind. There's a lot of investment from China into Africa, and there's a lot of concern about the, the way China is influencing Africa. Do you see the same kind of thing in South Africa? Chinese investment in South Africa. Wow. Um, yeah, well, if you drive up to Bruma, you'll see there's a, there's a pretty thriving Chinese community there. If they've all been... Uh, been brought in on proper visas or not, who knows. The, the thing that, 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 that I guess, and I don't know about these things, I, you know, I just don't know, are Chinese better than Americans? We know the DOJ has done us a huge number of favors by, by nailing crooks, uh, because if you're a corrupt person and you're doing business in America, they'll arrest you, as they did with the finance minister, uh, the ex-finance minister of Mozambique over the tuna bond scandal. There he was on his way to Dubai to see his chick. And uh, at OR Tambo, swapping planes, uh, the South African authorities put him in jail, where he is sitting at the moment. 
uh, without bail, ahead of expedition to the United States on, on the tuna bond issue. And it's only the United States who, who do this. The DOJ does it. Whether China is a, a force for good or a force for bad, I guess only time will tell. But the good news about that is that South Africa have, have people with today who are not trying to do deals with China to line their own back pockets. They're not trying to do a nuclear deal which will bankrupt the, com uh, the country but build new, ho new homes in Dubai. The people who are in those positions today to make those decisions will think about it from South Africa's interests, not from their personal interests. That's, that's as an observer, uh, the only thing that I, that, that I can see. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that it would be a possibility for South Africa to have young entrepreneurs or the best entrepreneurs working for the government. What do you think would need to happen for that to become a reality? It's coming. The, development, the developmental state was part of the National Development Plan, which was tabled in 2012. The National Development Plan might not be the best plan, but it is brutally honest. If you read the National Development Plan, you will see that there is nothing varnished there. Everything in the National Development Plan shows the, the brutal truth about South Africa. Ramaphosa was intimately involved in that. Trevor Manuel was the commissioner. He was the deputy commissioner. So you've got a president who, who spent years putting together with some pretty smart people a plan which has just been gathering dust. That is being dusted off at the moment. The entrepreneurial state idea is an idea of the state facilitating, building the platform, making things right, as they're doing or trying to do anyway with Eskom at the moment, so that the private sector can thrive from it. It's great in theory. When you... When you when you look back at where we come from and you then consider that Tito Mboweni, the finance minister, could say the things that he did say yesterday, like this public protector, I've got a problem with her. She's a problem. Under Zuma, you would never do that because she was a Zuma impl implant. The watershed that has occurred in this country has not been fully appreciated yet. That's my thesis. And from my observations, I would suggest that we all need to do a little bit more homework and consider a little bit more on this quadrant of change. Because many South Africans are, are still caught in that in the view, rightly so. They've been, they've been abused for the last nine years by a, a kleptocratic state. But they're still in that view that, no, no, these new, these new guys are no different. I would suggest that they are, and my observations are showing that they are. And that means building something for young people for the future. It's all that it's about. Last question. Um, I would like to know in terms of retention of skills and unemployment because um, there's so many young graduates that's brilliant and they can't find employment might be because of skin colour, etc. So how do those problems? Um, if you read the State of the Nation address, uh, there's quite a lot of realisation that the fourth industrial revolution is a competition globally for skills. South Africa has dipped out of that up until now because that was not the priority of those who were governing the country. The priority of the those governing the country was to line their pockets. We now have somebody who wants to put an iPad, is putting an iPad into the hand of each school child because you can't get your books to them in the first place. And secondly, how can you get ready for the fourth industrial revolution if you don't have access to that? I hear then from people who don't research it and just assume and say, but where are they going to get the Wi-Fi from? Have a look at what young Alan Not Craig has done in uh, Trini. If you go to Trini and you go to Mamalodi and Atrichville, you will find there's free Wi-Fi there for the community and there are entrepreneurs who are using that Wi-Fi to build businesses into the future. It all begins with a change in attitude. The, you put your finger on it. The, this, this country is hemorrhaging skills. It's at a frightening rate. That has to be reversed. But to end off with, I see a lot of South Africans in the UK. We are a tribe. We are who we are. And we engage with each other. 
the Brits are their own tribe and we kind of, we, we, we do talk a lot. And it is very rare in the UK to find a South African who does not call South Africa home or who does not believe that they will return one day. It's different in Australia. It's almost like a different philosophy. When people go to Australia, it's, my experience was that they go there to stay. But in the UK, where we have an estimated million South Africans, most of them highly skilled, residing at the moment, they are just waiting for the country to deserve them to return. And that is something that a man who's now running the country is fully aware of.